I've eaten too much meat. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, and welcome to The Film File, episode four, in which this week Andy talks film news. We're joined by a guest, and I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meakin. And we're joined by... Scott. He's back. 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 It's like a sequel that you never wanted. (laughs) (laughs) So let's just catch up with a little bit of housekeeping. As you know, last time we did the film file, Andy and I were both a bit crook. We both got a cold. Andy, feeling better? Uh, A lot better. Uh, I'm I'm at that phase now where I just have random sneezing fits, but then I'm fine for most of the day. I'm through with it. We had actually had a couple of messages from people who said, uh, get better soon or die, (laughs) whether you like the show or not. I'll leave that up to you. I have, but, to, I have to just mention with with regards to the last recording, normally when it comes to the editing of this, you pretty much hear what we spoke. I only take about, oh, maybe 30 seconds of total dead space. But on the last one, there was nine minutes chopped because our heads were just not in the game. Oh, it was hard work. It was hard work. <laughs> but feeling much better this week. Anyway, uh, that's housekeeping. Also, I uh, just want to think on, uh, thank you for all of you, all of those uh, who've subscribed to the show. Thank you so much. It makes us feel good about ourselves in ways that... We can't explain, but pass on everything you know to your friends. Tell everybody about the film file. We just got to get those numbers up because eventually we want to get people. Uh, we do this for free. We do this for the love of it. We do this for the love of film and cinema and all things media. But eventually we want to get uh, people who want to chuck money at us so we can have fancy dinners other than the cakes that Andy's just laid out in front of me. But keep going. Keep with the reviews. Say nice things about us. It makes our self-esteem rise through the room. Right. Here we go with the worldwide news brought to you by Worldwide Andy. I feel like I need a xylophone to go... We've got to have something that goes off there. So uh, let's start with remake news because there's always it's another remake week. news, isn't there? It's another day, another remake. Uh, this one's one which has been buzzing around for a while, but it's starting to heat up now. Uh, the remake of Clue. Anyone a fan of the original Clue? Tim Curry, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Martin Mull. Yep. Uh, directed by Jonathan Lynn, who was responsible for Yes Minster. No, I've never seen it. No. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the original is held in high regard by many. You much of a fan, Scott? It, I've, I've watched it. I get why it's, it's it's become a cult film, hasn't it? Like a, a good, bad film. Um, it's enjoyable, but I, I don't know if I'm... Do you remember the thing about it? The American release, why it was different than the British release? Three different endings. Three different endings. And cinemas didn't know which ending they would get. Okay. So audiences were going in, not knowing how it was going to finish. And sometimes you could go to a different cinema and get a different ending. On the DVD and the home release, you can now see all three endings. Oh, really? It's been edited together to make it like, oh, this could have happened, or this could have happened. Um, but on the original release, it was such a great gimmick at the time. Yeah. It'd be interesting if they repeat that. For the yeah, release. I mean, because that could some that could work really well on on home release. Uh, it could be a gimmick for home release. But yes, that's how they did it in the yeah. cinema. They had different endings, so... I don't know if anything it was a, there was a plot point uh, that that changed halfway through or anything like that, but they had different endings for it. But the remake is um, being greenlit as part of um, Ryan My Man Crush Reynolds's uh, three, who hasn't got a man crush on Ryan <laughs> three year first look deal that he struck with Fox, which means that any new projects that get put into their stable, he gets a first pass on them. And he's decided to take his own production company to help develop it. He's brought on board the writing team that he's worked with on Deadpool and Life, uh, Rhett Reese and Paul Wernock. Yeah, they're Zombieland. coming back for Zombieland 2 aren't they as yeah. Well? yeah and they're working on fleshing out the script and the most recent news is that Jason Bateman is in talks not only to star alongside Reynolds which that's a great combination um, but also he's potentially going to direct the film as well 
He's directed some Arrested Development episodes. I like him. I think he's he's great, uh, Jason Bateman. I watched Juno, funny enough, yesterday mm. for the first time in well since it came out. I've not yeah. no, not seen it again. He's so good in that role because his character turns on a dime. And, mm. and what's so good about Juno, and we'll get back to talking about everything else, is, is the fact that he's the guy you trust and then sort of blows it halfway through. Spoilers if you, it's only been out <laughs> since 2007. But he plays it so well. And The Gift, do you ever see The Gift? No, I, I hear he's got quite a good turn in that. Though. Fantastic in The Gift. It's It was on Netflix. I don't know if it's moved on, but he, he he's, he's brilliant. And he's got that ease as a, as a comedy actor, but he's also a good dramatic actor as well. So I'm interested. I'm very intrigued by this. For for us British people, Clue is actually Cluedo. For those who didn't and know. So for those who've never seen the original film, it's basically a, a film adaptation of the board game where they're trying to find out who the killer is with Professor Plum, did it Colonel in Mustard, etc. Miss Scarlet, she did it in the uh, in the library with a with a pole, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. So, you know, the, the, was it that kind of game? <laughs> <laughs> rumours be rumours. Even though it's theoretically a remake of the film, it can go any way with the storyline because yeah. it is just a murder mystery comedy yeah. set in a big mansion. Which, talking of which, uh, Ryan Johnson's new film, yeah. Knives Out, Knives Out, has that same sort of quality that that throwback to the old spooky house where there's a murder and a detective comes in to solve it. Looking forward to that. Great cast, by the looks of that. Absolutely brilliant cast. Chris Evans. Caught the trailer for the first time yesterday. Yeah. And that, Daniel that's Craig. I'm, I'm bought into it, even though Daniel Craig's accent is a bit weird in it because he's yeah, doing like a Texan the... role. <laughs> Apparently that's the best accent for a Brit to, to do is a Southern American accent. Oh, why? It Just seems to be the easiest one to, to because it sort of draws in, apparently. Or do you think it's more like most American media is based in the sort of North New York or California and, and they just go, oh, that's big. That southern. sounds like a Southern accent. Do you know, like Southern English people go, that's Northern. Don't know where. That's it, North. <laughs> Moving on to Sony and the Spider-Verse series of films that are building and building and building. Is this a sequel to Into the Spider-Verse? No, nope, this is just a, all of the different Spider-related projects that they're all working on. Left, right, and centre. I mean, we've already had talk of Silk, Nightwatch, Black Cat, Craven, Silver Sable. We've got Morbius in production at the moment. Now we've got Madam Web in development. Which is a character you may not know if you're not a Spider Man fan from Scott, the 90s. Tell us about Madam Web. Madam Web's the weirdest Spider Man character I can think of offhand. <laughs> it's almost like a serious way of doing like a Batmite. <laughs> so, so, wow, I never would have put it down as that. <laughs> It's, she's like some sort of cos. I don't know how cosmic she is, she's linked, but she's somehow linked to Spider Man and yes, she vested links, interest. Over the years, they've um, taken the basic blind like character of Madame Webb, who is a psychic, and they've extrapolated her storyline that she's not just a psychic; she's actually linked to the the web that fuses the whole of the Spider Verse together. Right, um, she could detect every multiverse version of any Spider entity and follow the patterns and decipher where they're all going. And when those webs get... In the recent years on the comics, they've had, like, the webs started to get severed while people were destroying spiders around, and she detected it first. I'm imagining that they're going to go the more modern approach with Madam Web, because there's a new Madam Web now. Because the old Madam Web used to just sit there and basically do nothing except for throw out cryptic clues yeah. every now and then. She was an old lady in a chair, if I yeah. remember. But the new one is, like, trench coat, like, blindfold on, and very active and combat web-ready, because uh, the original Madam Web has long since... Uh, Sony would save an awful lot of money if it was just an old lady in a chair. Yeah, a mystic Meg. 
Yeah. <laughs> With <laughs> spiders. This, this is where, like, the, I'm, I'm now referring to all their films, because whereas it was just, like, Spider-Man spin-offs, I'm referring to it as a Spider-Verse now, because if they're including Madam Web, they're including that for a reason, and I think they want to draw all of their Spider franchises into the one story. I'll bring you back to this. Uh, has she ever supported her own comic, never mind film? No. She, she's, <laughs> she's always been a support character in the Spider titles. So I know we've always talked about it because I, I, I think people who are into the Marvel films have always waited for it. They did it with Pixar, the film that will fail with the Marvel yeah. Studios. What's yeah. then? Everybody thought it was going to be Ant-Man and then, everybody, of course, before that, everybody thought it was going to be Guardians. And at the moment, it's, it's, it's still a runaway truck. Sony are going to have that situation where one of them fails we thought it was going to be Venom, but they did pretty good out, out of everything. Yeah. Mobius, there's been very little said about it. It's been in production for the last year, so yeah. I thought we might have seen some sort of teaser, if, if not a trailer for it by now. So they're going to push it too far. They're going to push the web. I know I said it, somebody had to, and it's going to break. Now they've got Spider-Man back. I'm sure they're going to be cautious about damaging their their core brand, yeah, which is the, which is Spider Man himself, and especially now they've still got Tom Holland, uh, and they know they've got a winning formula. But you know, there's still that chance, still that chance that, that uh, Marvel and Sony kiss and make up. It's a slim chance now, but from what slimmer I heard, slimmer. there are still ne- some amounts of negotiations. I don't know how true that is. And breaking news, just as we're recording this podcast today, is that the deal between Disney and Sony has finally been worked out. Apparently, Disney are going to be taking a 25% takings, so they've backed down from their 50%. I did kind of speculate that it was going to be around about 30%-ish they'd probably settle on, so 25 sounds about the ballpark. Um, and that means that for the next Spider-Man film, Figi will be helping coordinate it. And it also gives an option for Spider-Man to be used in the MCU for one other film. There we have it. It's all been dealt with and all been sorted. At the same time, we've still got the sequel to Venom, uh, which is going to be directed by Andy Serkis. But he's now brought on board one of the producers from the X-Men franchise, Hutch Parker. Read into that what you want to, because um, at the end of the day, the X-Men franchise isn't anything to hold in huge regard these days. Uh, yeah, and I had a discussion recently with uh, with the, the content being the X-Men series, if you've only joined it late, you forgot how impactful mm-hmm. X-Men was when it came out. And when X2 hit the screen, it was it was, uh, it was was almost a perfect version of the X-Men. I know it, start, it starts to feel dated in the sense of what's come after it, and Marvel changed, changed the game with that. But there's still, there's a lot to remember that how powerful X2 was when it came out. And it's up there with, with the Spider-Man 2, with, with uh, Superman the movie, has been one of those game changers. Absolutely. And, and as I was saying on our Marvel bonus one as well, e- even quite late in the game when we were a bit disillusioned with Fox because of all the continuity errors and the miscasts and all of that, they were still doing Logan, Deadpool. Mm. Still interesting turns and shouts. Um, so they've been relevant to the very end, even if it doesn't feel that way after Dark Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they just lost their way with it. And, Dark and, Phoenix, and, the film in which there was a funeral scene with, uh, set in the rain, of which the whole impact is lost <laughs> because Storm is stood there and she could have stopped it raining on them. But no, she thought, Did she no, cause you know it? what? Yeah. We're gonna let. I'm gonna let everyone get soaked because everything's that miserable. Now. Her powers might be emotive, so she wants to cry. <laughs> it rains. Oh, I see. We did that. It's like a carpenter. Storm, video. you're not invited to any more funerals. Go away. <laughs> yeah, bring a brolly. We'll have them inside. Grieve <laughs> on your own. Um, but one of the reasons that was cited for the recent breakup of the Sony Disney deal was uh, Kevin Feige and it having. A- Shall we just stop there? 
the great Kevin Figuez. He yeah. always start with and, that. And he had a huge workload and he couldn't dedicate the time to overseeing the production of the Spider-Man films anymore, which it was like, okay, so how has he managed this far? Because has he got anything new? He does three films a well, year now, as it is. we've recently discovered in the past few days that, yes, he has got something new. Yeah, he's apparently producing a Star Wars film, isn't he? Um, I... It's tough. Can I just say, stop you there, Scott, because he was how nonchalantly you put, yep, yeah, apparently because, he's going to be using the Star because, Wars. Because, though. legit, if you if you write every producer in the history of cinema's credentials on a piece of paper, Kevin Feige's like a superstar, hit after hit after, however he's done it, playing with his own toys in a toolbox with all the keys to the kingdom. Being like a more of an ambassador for the Star Wars property and producing a single Star Wars film. He's not proven he can... Do that no, absolutely. Um, so whilst yes, good deserves a chance. I'm not as we. I'm not as excited as I imagine most people are because I'm a bit trepidantly okay. You've not done this before. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm muted because I don't want Kevin Feige to to leave Marvel. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, he steered he steered a ship in a way that ten years ago when we first saw Iron Man, we were we were cautious and and, uh, and happy just to see those characters on screen and portrayed portrayed with love and affection for yeah. them and an understanding of, of characters. And if you've grown up with comic book movies, you know, nothing was ever worse than the introduction of a villain that they created just for the film. I'm looking at you, Spider, uh, Superman 4. <laughs> uh, Superman 3, don't you leave the room yet. <laughs> but there came to it a legitimacy and a sense of itself, and, and Kevin Feige was responsible for that. He clearly knows how to get talent on board that tells a bigger story, and, and he's part of a, a known universe. And then, yes, there were, there were universes before Marvel, but no one recognised them in the way that they are now. And he's, he's responsible for that. He's made some very bold moves. He's an interesting producer. I'd like to see him play in a different sandbox, yeah. but I don't want him to go to do that at the expense of the Marvel films because mm-hmm. he's, he's clearly, he clearly loves the franchises, whether you like them or not. I've got friends who, who don't care for them, are big comic fans, but you've got to admit how, what he's done when, when I was 10, 12 years old and we're reading comics it was always the furthest thing from your head that you you could see a film. You would sit through Nicholas Hammond playing Spider-Man just to get a glimpse <laughs> of the costume yeah. and somebody playing that role live. Um, I mean, so I'm interested until we know more details about it. But people like Chris Evans have said, if it's Kevin Feige is doing it, I will do it. Yep. He'll be, he'll be able to secure some good names, like you said. Um, he's going to be obviously working alongside Kathleen Kennedy, who's... Yeah, she steers the ship now. She's the yep. Kevin Feige of the... Uh, of the Star Wars universe, isn't she? And it's uh, Alan Horn, the chief creative officer, has issued a statement confirming the details. And within it, he said, with the close of the Skywalker, Skywalker saga, Kathy's pursuing a new era in Star Wars storytelling. And knowing what a diehard fan Kevin is, it made sense for these two extraordinary producers to work on a Star Wars film together. See, if he is genuinely a diehard fan, I'm hoping he uses it to see the potential for that whole universe because as I've said many times, the problems that I've had so far with the non-numbered Star Wars spin-off films is they've been too close to the numbered ones story-wise. They've 
felt like they've had to interlink into them. Did we need a solo backstory? No, we didn't need to know how he got the name Solo. I was quite happy to just know he's called Solo. Liked it, but I totally agree. And Rogue One, I just felt was just there. And you could see that it being like chopped and edited around and changed. And there was bits from the trailers that didn't make into the end film. And it didn't seem quite seem like the film that it wanted to be to start with because they tried to make it more like the Star Wars films. I'm hoping that, a, I'm hoping that now film. they can just go, right, we've got a huge galaxy. Now we can tell completely separate stories. The Skywalker lot is all out the way. We don't need to do anything linking to there. Save them for the TV shows, you know, where you've got like the Obi-Wan series that they're working on. Do the TV shows linking into the Skywalker story, but let the films grow in their own way. Ryan Johnson still developing his new trilogy, which is going to be a whole new story in a whole new era. That's what I get excited about. Mm. I'm not... I mean, we were only, only talking just before we started recording that we're not feeling the buzz for episode nine. That's interesting. Is it still, is it too early? Is, are we... It's two months away. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> I, I, my, my only theory on that is Last Jedi did, went so out of its way to subvert expectation. And it, it's got interesting character moments and interesting subversions. However... It doesn't leave you with an Empire Strikes Back like I need to watch the last installment ending as much as a oh did, did we <laughs> did we all come at last Jedi, uh, last Jedi with a sense of expectation of what we thought the kind of film it was going to be? Did we instantly all assume this is the second part of a, of a trilogy, therefore it needs to be Empire? And did did he subvert that? Is that a discussion for another time? I think, I think that's a discussion for a whole like yeah, um, bonus episode. Hour, actually, there you go, know. bonus episode coming soon. Yeah, we'll have a bonus episode. <laughs> the of subversion like, of the, the Empire. M- the toss questions around the Star Wars franchise. I'll have to think of those ones. But yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll get back to that on like another time when we can discuss it in more depth. But uh, yeah, I, I do think it's because Last Jedi was very polarizing in the opinions, and I was very much on the side of oh, it feels like he's just undone everything that JJ was setting up, and whilst JJ's back to tidy things up and finish it all off. It just feels that in the end that it's possibly going to end up that The Last Jedi is just a off piece from what should have been one continuous story. Yeah. And that's where I have the problems with it. And I think that's why I'm not feeling the buzz for it because I'm worried that JJ's just going to use it to undo what was done in Last Jedi the same way that Last Jedi undid what was done in Force Awakens. And I don't feel that that makes for a good story. It's a mosaic instead of a picture. Yeah. Right, moving away from space to A Quiet Place. And we all saw A Quiet Place, yeah? We did. We did. A, a fantastic film. And I'll, I'll quickly, before you move on, because I always do this, I know. It scared me to death going into the cinema to see that film because so much is invested in a good audience. If you've yeah. got a rowdy audience or an audience who weren't with it at any point, it would have spoiled the sense of that film. Thankfully, I saw it with an audience. And I was worried because uh, it, it felt like an unsettled audience for the first minute or so and then they got into it and you need silence you need an audience to be silent it puts the pressure on the audience to be respectful of each other and the film but going on to quiet place two uh, yeah so john krasinski is confirmed that shooting is wrapped on the sequel in that manner that everyone confirms that shooting is wrapped these days by posting a photo on twitter and instagram this one of him and his wife emily blunt stood on the bridge hand in hand emily blunt is obviously returning for the sequel and she's joined by noah dupe Millicent Simmons, Killian Murphy, and Jaimon Hounsou. Interesting guys. I like Killian Murphy. Yep. I like Jaimon Hounsou. I think like he, he's someone who just should be in a lot more films. You yeah. see him from time to time and you go, wow, wow, How he should be he? he should be an A-lister. But he's still just that supporter. 
in everything, but he's a great support. He always brings something but he brings to every character. He's a character actor. The film is going to explore the larger world because the last film was very self-contained in like just that farm. And it was just, we just saw how it was impacted on that one family. Now it's got to branch out and let us see how's the rest of the world coping with these creatures attacking? Are the creatures attacking everywhere in the world or is it isolated to certain areas? So it, it's got so much potential to really grow this idea. I love the idea of the film. I love, like you say, the audience has embraced it and we're quiet. Working in a cinema, we were expecting to get like people coming out saying, someone's making noise, someone's doing this, someone's doing that. No, so you'd pop your head into the screen and everyone's just sat in silence. It's that thing of having to read, wasn't it? And it was a, there was a thing of the shared experience of the silence and what was going to come out of the silence. A very good film. It, it, it worked on all the best elements of being a horror film. And it was a horror film. It was a, it was a, a monster movie at its very, very heart. It offered something more. It, it offered a cerebral quality to a, to a good horror film. And it didn't do the thing that sometimes that genre does. It, it didn't forget its roots. That it, This is, in fact, first uh, a monster movie. Yeah. And, and then go, I'm going to to build on the other monster movie. It always uh, frustrates me when you get a horror film or a, a supernatural film and the director says, yeah, it's an art film. The, the monsters are, are, you know, it's about the deeper dark psyche. No, it's a monster film first. And it, and it understood that and it appreciated that. And that's why it worked. And it allowed to add family tension and, and, and get away with the conceit of it being in silence. A fantastic film. I hope it doesn't let down the legacy of the first film. And it could be, from what you've just described, Andy, it could be the aliens to to the first film, yeah. Alien. The first film is very claustrophobic, yeah, contained. very tense. Then it can go wider and see the battle against the creatures. And but, with that cast as well, with Krasinski being back in the director's chair, yeah. the same writers, then I've got a lot of He's faith He's got a in great it. eye for a good shot. Yeah. I'm going to quickly skip across to our DC expert at the table. Hi, Scott. Hi. Um, Batman's Batman casting. What's the latest word on the Batmans? Um, so, uh, Jeffrey Wright's been cast to play Commissioner Gordon. Great actor. Which, um, obviously, because he has a different ethnicity, causes debate. That <laughs> I'm not even convinced there is a debate. I think people. I don't think there is. I, I agree with you. People preempt it by going, there's probably a debate out there. So, this is my two penny. I'd, I've not heard, I've not personally heard a single person say anything other than, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, I, like <laughs> I, I, I like him as an actor. Um, he, he did it once before. He played Felix Leiter in, in, in the Bond series, Daniel Craig Bond mm. series. No one mentioned then that, that we'd race jump to it with that character. Commissioner Gordon, it doesn't matter, does it? No. It doesn't matter if he's a white guy, a black guy, an Asian guy. It's Commissioner Gordon is essential for his role in, in the stories. Yeah, if you've got a bit of gravitas in a trench coat, I feel like you're pretty much there. Yeah. It's like when Perry White was Lawrence Fishburne. It like, yeah. Did it does matter? It, no. Do, no, it doesn't, does it? You're quibbling. And we had this discussion a few uh, episode two. Um, you know, if the if the character doesn't demand it, mm. then it's about finding the good actor for it. And and I think Jeffrey Wright is a fantastic actor. I loved his work in, in Westworld. And then uh, Jonah Hill as well, um, and there's a lot of debate whether he's going to be the Penguin or the Riddler. Which would be the obvious choice, the Penguin. Well, it depends on his, his, his oh, weight know. situation, he, he, doesn't He's kind it? of shed a lot. So. <laughs> because he blooms and shrinks so rapidly. He's, like, he's, he's good for both, depending on where he's at, isn't he? <laughs> and the rumour I've heard is it's the last Halloween storyline. Which is great. I, I, I've wanted a proper detective Batman since day one. We've had every other variant. We've had hints of slight bit of detective work here and there, but one that's just a crime story, just straight up mystery. 
Uh, we've not had the detective Batman, I feel, since the first Tim Burton, Michael Keaton, which we saw him being a detective and, and sorting out the plot of the Joker. Yeah, He yeah. did it as a detective as opposed to uh, banging heads. Yeah. Yeah, we usually get scenes to go, oh, and he's a detective, rather than he is a detective, mm. first and foremost, and then whatever. Remember, the name's in the comics, kids. Detective Comics. That's oh, that where it came from. Oh, <laughs> I was always wondering. <laughs> so out of the two characters that he's been tipped for, uh, the people are speculating, which one would you? Riddler. I think Riddler. Well, well I'm, I'm dying for a decent live-action Riddler. That's not Jim Carrey by way of Frank Gorshin. <laughs> Just so a more sinister, egomaniacal... You mean like Frank Gorshin? <laughs> Frank Gosh is great for the 60s Batman fantastic I just he don't... felt you he want... felt dangerous Frank yeah. Gorshin's but I just feel really... like we're, we're at a point I want a different filter well, for that like I always said like you know when Nolan was doing the Batman films if he had brought Riddler in I thought his, he would have done an interesting kind of take in that context because when you think about it Riddler is someone who is so mentally unstable that he kind of wants to get caught in That's the act I mean. and mm. lays down these tra- like these clues to try to get caught. And he's got a thrill out of trying to get caught. And there's such a dark psyche that can be explored you there. You could do like a Zodiac Killer-esque, yeah. sort of some taunting thing where he's like, come get me. <laughs> like... It's funny, I've just read uh, Year Zero, the Scott Snyder mm. version take on it. Uh, and and that was that, that Riddler. He's always been seen as a C-list. He's, he's obviously a joke if you want him to be, but... Like you said, if you want to deep delve into the psyche, that would if you filter that through a real context, it's really disturbing, and you can do something really cool and interesting with that character. Whereas Penguin, it's always going to be a mob boss. We've kind of seen it. Yeah, that. I think Penguin was explored quite well on the Gotham TV series. Yeah, it's um, the best thing that did. I'd like them to maybe not explore that route again because that kind of held Gotham together. Yeah. The other characters that came in and out were good, but it was Penguin that was for me, the focus for that series, mm. his rise to power. So moving on to Ridley Scott's new revenge drama that's not even in production yet and not even been greenlit yet, but has already got names attached. I don't know anything about this one. It's called The Last Jewel and it's set in the 14th century of France. The story is following a soldier who returns from war to find that his best friend had abused his wife, uh, the soldier's wife. And so he seeks an audience with the king in order to get permission to have a duel because at that point duels you have to go through the king to get them authorised and it becomes the last duel in recorded history. Oh, interesting. Um, and also going back on himself was his second film, was it his first film? Was, was Duelists. Was a duelist. Yeah. At the moment, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon are okay. connected to star. You so... were shocked then. I'm <laughs> just like, the two names that like, you, you so automatically put together, you almost purposely keep them apart in these projects. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> And uh, it's now added the recent Best Actress Emmy winner, Jodie Comer from Killing Eve, mm. uh, into the mix. Now, this is something that isn't greenlit yet, but already has those three names attached. So everyone is expecting that the green light will go yeah. within the next few days and it will start shooting early next year. I'm excited for it. Like you say, it's returning back to an old kind of theme that he's done. Mm. And I think Ridley Scott has so much potential to like revisit his old ideas and really deliver something spectacular. And with those names on board, I'm I'm already I'm already in. His light's been a little bit dimmed recently, hasn't it? And with Alien Covenant not really delivering much of anything, to be honest. Um it was the most unridley Scott film I think I've ever seen. It didn't have what one would expect. It just it was just a replay. Uh, in fact, the video game, Alien Isolation, was a better film 
yeah. uh, was much better than than uh, Covenant ever was. And then I didn't see the one that came out last year about the um, kidnapping the all the money of the world. Is it? <laughs> I, I'm not too sure. And it was all, the one where Kevin Spacey was originally and still yeah. a postcard, please, oh, folks. Uh, oh yeah, know the, mean, the, yeah. I know. I know which one you mean. And that sort of disappeared, and that was a big yeah. Christmas Day release. So he's reached the stage where I think he's got to come back with something that that proves that he's still got that Ridley Scott uh, magic to almost yeah. like the the line out of Blade Runner. But Ridley Scott's one of these directors that um, his work's been copied by so many people. His style has been picked up and, and run with the ball that he has to find something unique. He can't cons- consistently make a Ridley Scott looking film because he's done that so many times. But I'd like to see him come back with some great material and just show again that he can do great visuals because he's a fantastic visualist um, with better stories that, that engage and, and shows him to his true potential. When was the last time you were excited about one of his films? That's a good... Well, Prometheus was the one that I think right. I was excited for because I think expectation on Prometheus was was bigger and better than the film. Mm. And I have revisited Prometheus and I like it a lot more a second and third yeah. time around, but it's not classic Ridley Scott. I can't think of anything north of Gladiator. Yeah, there was the... There was very little in the way of what you what you consider that bold. years of Ridley Scott yeah, film. It's, a, it's, a, it's been a couple of decades where there's not been anything that's stood out. So maybe this will be the return to form that we've all been waiting for. Let's um, hope so, because he's so. always a director worth seeing. The franchise that depends on nostalgia to keep going, despite an ever-spiralling decay of quality, is going full nostalgia for the next outing, as Laura Dern, Sam Neill and Jeff Goldblum have all been given extended roles in Jurassic World 3. This came out of nowhere this week. This landed, uh, this news landed this week with some some amount of raised eyebrows. So certainly for my quarter, the first question was why checking everything out wall and why we we I I think the Jurassic franchise has just sort of ebbed itself into a corner, yeah, uh, and wished itself in quite nicely that it can only go one direction and nothing much in the way of surprises. It was the last film, the last Kingdom film was. Very disappointing, even though it looked fantastic, and there were some great moments in it. But ultimately, what a what a mishmash of a storyline, where the what should have been an apt conclusion happened halfway through the film. Uh, I think they missed opportunities right, left, and centre. Lost World Three. Yeah, Pratt and Howard are back on the cast list, and Colin Trevorrow is returning to direct and part write the story. <sighs> I think I, they got away have... with the first one because the first one almost powered off nostalgia. Oh, it was pure uh, nostalgia fuel. Uh, and and the, the, the one thing they've not done, imagine if this part worked for a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um and then and then play back to what's happened before. And then after that, I feel I feel it's played, it's all played. What tell well, me an angle. Tell I, me an angle well, of these I, dinosaurs. I'm, I'm just expecting nice friendly velociraptors again. Another T Rex scene that just comes out of nowhere and doesn't really do anything. And maybe just maybe another bloody hybrid. Yeah. Because that's what they fell back on in the past two films. And it's like, really? We don't need another hybrid? I'm not expecting much of a plot, character development, or a reason to care, to be honest with you. It's almost like we talked about Star Wars earlier in, in the programme, which it, it feels a little bit tainted, much more so than, than, than coming back into the Star Wars universe. Other than making money, which of course is, is very <laughs> valid in Hollywood, and don't please don't get me wrong, that that's how films do well. I think it's run its course. Yeah. I think it came back. I think it, it came back fairly strong, and, and and I understood why they rehashed it because it brought in a new audience who'd not seen 
Jurassic Park. It brought in kids who Jurassic Park felt old-fashioned to. But nothing's going to take away from what, what Jurassic Park did when you first saw it and you were in awe and wonderment of it. It was one of those movies that changed cinema, uh, even though you probably didn't realise it was changing cinema. Yeah. But we'll see. I, it's good to see Goldblum on screen in anything he does. I'm not overly optimistic. I will probably see it. I'll probably see it with one of you guys. G.I. Joe. Do you remember those films? They lasted all of two films, didn't they? Well, they're getting a reboot stroke spin-off. It only can be one character. <laughs> Snake Eyes. Snake Eyes. The only character that anyone in those past two films went, oh, that'd be an interesting character to explore. And it's took them this long to go, yeah, but we're going to recast and get a completely different thing and start it as a new franchise. And the character doesn't speak, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, it's going to be set in the early days of Snake Eyes, uh, played by Henry Golding, who is being opposed by Andrew Coie um, from Warrior, who's Storm Shadow. The film is going to look at the early days of Snake Eyes as an induction into the Ninja Clan. If you thought that we didn't want, need or deserve a reboot spin-off of the G.I. Joe film, maybe the director of Tats will change your mind. <laughs> uh, he gave us Red, retired Extremely Dangerous. Okay, okay yeah, I liked Red. Was... However, he also gave us R.I.P.D. I liked Red. <laughs> but he's not acronyming this time. Maybe it's a good sign. Oh, this is where it ends up S dot N dot A dot A dot E eyes. It takes you 10 minutes to ask for the film. <laughs> October 2020 is the month that you need to be looking to see what else is coming out because that's when that's it's expected to land. Snake eyes. <laughs> oh, 2020. No. I'm I get this big feeling there are, and I, I, we know this to be true. It's not even speculation. There are. Guys in executives' office who are kind of our age, who grew up on cartoons and grew up on uh, a pop culture, and are bringing that pop culture to the big screen. However, there's a younger generation. You've got kids who've just who don't know this thing, who no, don't no, no. know this world, and we rely on them. It's it's when they suggest, you know, would it be great to do a Major Matt Mason film, which they've announced with Tom Hanks. I remember Major Matt Mason. I'm probably one of the only kids in my school who had one <laughs> and the little book that went with it. It wasn't a name that was internationally known, but there's an executive who played with the Major Matt Mason when he was a, uh, was a kid and has had a lifelong dream to see him on the big screen. It's when we start scraping the bottom of the franchise barrel that then it becomes desperate. Yeah. And then that's when those, those, uh, um, those franchises aren't found by an audience because the, those audiences now 30 to 40 year old guys upwards rather than 13 to 15, 16 year olds who are the ones who we should, should be won over. How many times do they want us to bring Battlestar Galactica back? And there's talk oh, yeah. of a reboot right now. It's, it's running out of steam. We, we are a lot older. You can't aim it at 13 and 14 year olds anymore. Every three or four years, I hear the rumor of a Captain Planet movie. Yeah. And every time I think, Oh, I'll watch it. <laughs> but, uh, why? Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's just but anything. your kids wouldn't get that reference. No, they, no. They, they'd have no interest in it. No. Yeah. It, it, it's a very, it, it wasn't even good at the time. No. <laughs> it's like we just remember it because we were of an age. I mean, if, if, he, if even a more recent kind of phenomenon for kids can come to the big screen and not really have much of an impact, and I'm talking Dora the Explorer here. Yeah. Which is supposed to be a very good film, from but what I've heard. it just didn't get the impact. Yeah. And that's two generations after us, basically. Yeah. So, you know, they are looking too far back to things that are completely obscure these days. Yeah. And it, it's the wrong road to go. By all means, TV shows of the 80s and everything, which would get repeated constantly on TV. You know, I'd love to see another A-team on the big screen. I quite enjoyed The Last Outing. It was a good bit of fun. 
But don't just go to toy lines that have been long out of production yeah. and try to revisit them as though it's some kind of like great mythology. It was never a great mythology. It was a cartoon series designed to sell toys. Yes. Are you looking forward to the Polly Pocket movie in 2021? Then? Oh, top of my list, man. If that, that, if that doesn't get all the Oscars, I don't know what will. To wrap up the news this week... You know someone's going to get in touch with it and go, is there really? <laughs> To wrap up the news this week, um, after all the levity of us discussing all the other things, uh, let's just take a moment of uh, melancholy to mourn the passing of Sid Haig, uh, known for his iconic Captain Spaulding role in Rob Zombie's films. If you're not a fan of Rob Zombie films, I'm not a huge fan. No, I mean, that's one of the few films I've worked out He was iconic within them. Even I've, I've watched them and I go, well, I can see why the fuss was around him. The rest of the film fell apart around him. But... You know, he's been present throughout the decades from the exploitation films of the 70s, like Foxy Brown. He's been present in TV shows. You've pretty much seen him in something from Man From Uncle, Batman, A-Team, MacGyver, Hill Street Blues, Charlie's Angels. He was even uh, given some roles in Jackie Brown uh, by Tarantino and Kill Bill Volume 2. So you might not recognise the name, but he's one of those faces that you would have recognised every time that he popped up on screen. His final appearance is in the third one of Rob Zombie's trilogy, The Three from Hell. Right. Which has had limited release, and it's probably going to get a wide release. It probably is. But, you know, it's it's a sad loss of someone who has had such a prevalent role as a supporting actor in so many things throughout the decades. And, you know, it's I, I think, you know, whilst it didn't relate to his work with Rob Zombie. Once I saw a picture of him without all that makeup on, it was like, oh no, I do recognise him. Yeah, you would do. And it's always good that, that, you know, the opposite of what we've just talked about with the nostalgia factor with toys, it's always great to see those actors that that have been loved. I mean, Tarantino's done this countless of times, putting Nicholas Hammond in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's it's great that 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 appreciation for, for those character actors and those people from your past who's whose careers may have, may have dried up a little bit to, to, to give them a new lease of life. You know, he did it with John Travolta, believe it or not. Yeah, yeah. If you think about <laughs> yeah, it, John Travolta was, was kind of washed up. And he brought, he brought him, brought him, him back. Well, he's there again now, so. Yeah, well, you know, Tarantino stopped working with him. So that's the, uh, that's the news. If you've got any gossip, anything you want to tell us, drop us a line uh, via Twitter on... At Filmfile UK. And we'd be looking forward to hearing from you. If you want to just say nice things about us, as I said before, please get in touch. It's, oh, it's your reviews that really, really help. So uh, since we spoke to you last, last episode, we talked about It Chapter 2. We're going to be talking about a film that's had a very mixed reaction from the critics. A lot of them saying it's a masterpiece and it's yet failing to find a great audience. No, we're not talking about Joker because it's not being released yet. That's next week, isn't it? It is next week. We can't wait. Maybe we'll have to do a special Joker episode, I think. But we're talking about Ad Astra, directed by James Gray, starring Brad Pitt. I saw it. Andy saw it. Scott's not seen it yet. No. So we're going we're gonna to talk about that, and we're going to be talking about how science fiction is now being portrayed on the big screen. And as the era of the big, more cerebral science fiction films gone. But first, Ad Astra. What can you tell us about the Lima Project? The ship disappeared approximately 16 years into the mission. And the commander was... He was my father, sir. Your father was experimenting with a highly classified material that could threaten our entire solar system. All life could be destroyed. We're counting on you to find out what's happening. I love you. I worry about you. Are you truly sure that you're ready to go on this voyage? I'm ready. 
We're going to be entering hostile territory. But the mission is the priority. We cannot stop. Nothing can prepare you for what is out there. So Ad Astra is basically Hearts of Darkness, or for those who don't know, Hearts of Darkness, Apocalypse Now, set in space. It even has a Colonel Kurtz type sequence at the end. Yep. Brad Pitt is the key character in it. He plays Major Roy McBride, a man who's always lived in the shadow of his father's legend, H. Clifford McBride, played by Tommy Lee Jones, who led a secret project 16 years ago to reach the outskirts of the solar system in search for intelligent life. A series of pulses from near Neptune caused worldwide power surges, and Roy sent on a top-secret mission to Mars to try to establish communications with his father and discover what's happening. The journey, as with Hearts of Darkness, sees the pitfalls of man around him, while Roy's internal journey of the soul also plays out. It is very much 2001 meets Apocalypse Now. And I had not read anything. I, I, I deliberately avoided it. I'd seen it. It got great reviews. I'd seen a couple of uh, poor reviews, but I, I stayed away from it. So I went in with a, with a clean expectation of what I was about to expect. And I, I thoroughly loved it. I thought it looked fantastic. It had almost a retro 2001-esque uh, view of it. It was, it was very, very stylized. Stylized in the way that an, an art movie would, to, to a degree. I thought Brad Pitt was fantastic in it. The voiceover reminded me of Martin Sheen in Apocalypse Now. I, I really, really walked out and I loved it. And then suddenly something happened. I, I heard other reviews and saw other reviews. And it sort of knocked me back a little bit because I'd gone in having a great time. Yes, it was it was, it was was beautiful. It was very well done. It was flawed. Uh, flawed in some, some of the plot areas. But I did have a good time. And has that ever happened to you? You ever walked out of a film, you loved it, then you read a review and you go, was, was I right? Was I wrong on this? To a degree. Well, I, I'm, I'm one of those people, I'm sure you two are the, exactly the same way. You, you're digesting it for days after the fact yeah. anyway. So I think some of that's almost a natural digestion period in a weird way because obviously people can point stuff out. You probably know it consciously or unconsciously yourself and you weigh that up on its own merits. But I don't think anyone's changed my opinion after the fact. But people have helped me articulate my initial feeling in that period of time. And then, and then it usually sets, doesn't it, until you watch it again. Yeah, it drew my attention to the flaws and, and some of the flaws that it was. It was, it was an amazing essay, an amazing visual journey. I thought Pitt was fantastic. I, I liked where it was going. It had these strange moments where it drifted into an action movie and then drifted back out of it. as almost, almost chapter headings on, on, on each part of the journey. Those were the little bits that threw me out. I was more interested in, in almost the internal journey, but it looked beautiful. So whenever it did did veer off, whenever it did feel a little bit awkward, I was always drawn back to how, how that it was a brave science fiction film to make in this day and age. And, and that surprised me, I mean, to say that, because we've now had a place where we're not adverse to seeing amazing special effects anymore. We, very rarely are we blown away. There were moments of this which, which were, the effects-wise were very practical-looking, uh, and had a, had a sense of, of, of real drama again and real scope and real scale. But it made me think that, is the big science fiction film dead? If this is not really finding its audience because it is more of a, a thought journey than an action film, uh, are, are, have we reached a stage where we can't have a 2001 anymore? I was thinking of Annihilation, which ended up going straight to Netflix because it, it didn't really find an audience or wasn't perceived to find an audience on the big screen. What are your thoughts on that? I think... I mean, there's over the past few years there have been that style of like classic sci-fi brought to the big screen that have been successful. Interstellar, yeah, for example, 
was a box office smash, but you know, was it the fact that Nolan's name was attached to it that drew mm. the audiences in more than anything else? Who Gravity. knows? Gravity yeah. um, was, although Gravity, some... was, Gravity was more a disaster movie in space, yeah. um, so it, it really did have like the action, action, action. I think The Martian is probably going to be the one that stands out as being like it. That is the same kind of like one man journey, yeah, kind of thing of this. Not a lot happens in The Martian, but you're engrossed throughout, and audiences embrace that. I think that was that was down to casting. I think Matt Damon in that role, and it, it was a warm role. And, and the the Brad Pitt character in this is a much more isolated. He's, he's a cold character from the get go, and that's his journey. Matt Damon was on full full tilt. Matt Damon, yeah. likable character, and it was jokey. And, and Drew Goddard made quite an impenetrable book very very into a very enjoyable film. Uh, and it's, it makes me think now: Is there is there a, a new genre called the sad astronaut? <laughs> Have we discovered this? Uh, this is a, a, every couple of years a, the lone single sad astronaut film. Well, I always think sci-fi, good sci-fi, if not all sci-fi, it's it's, it's using fantastical scientific elements to discuss the human condition, isn't it? And whatever our concerns are for whatever period it's made. So a lot of sci-fi is so prevalent; it's obviously around. But I I, I find they're always in the like moon or district nine molds of a more sort of subtle commentary or threat on the human condition whereas the ex- more exploratory space thing they usually happen in periods of optimism human growth in humanity and, and reaching for the stars we've not had that for years have we no so even not. interstellar it's more of a ode to humanity and what we've done and what we could do than anything like we will get here do you know yeah. what i mean like <laughs> Yeah, I, you, I was uh, thinking of Blade Runner, the Blade Runner sequel, which um, was beautiful, was, oh, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. was a unique film, but didn't find an audience. No. And it was a big scale. You had to see it on. You had to see it in, in, in IMAX to really appreciate it. But it, we'd moved on. Uh, an audience has moved on. And, and I just wonder if, if the home of the cerebral sci-fi is, you know, people's cinemas have become more like your lounge and your lounge has become more like a cinema now. So... Does it matter? I not found myself wanting to watch the Blade Runner sequel at home. I know it's up on Netflix right now because it'll, it will underscore what that film's about for me because it, it, I needed that big screen. I found it so immersive. Mm. But does it work better because it's it's uh, it's a much more personal journey? I don't know. I, I don't know what the answer is. I, I, I mentioned Star Trek The Motion Picture has <laughs> yeah. been, been a perfect example of, of wanting to do a cerebral, um, a cerebral science fiction film while Star Wars had just done remarkably well and sort of pipped it at the post to the big screen in a way that, that uh, have, have we moved on from that? But I hope not because there's always, always a place for good science fiction. Using Star Trek The Motion Picture, I mean, that is sneered at. I mean, I, I love the film and there are like, it, it has got a lot more people becoming fans of it now. I liked it, um, liked it More and more. But at the time, it was very much, it got referred to very frequently as the slow motion picture. Yeah. Nothing happens. It's drawn out. There's no need for this. So then the second film, Wrath of Khan, action, adventure, action, adventure. And people lap that up and that got the franchise completely moving. Mm. Sci-fi today, the ones that seem to get the box office blockbuster impact seem to be the ones that grab the action-adventure type of things. That's what I mean. We're looking for escapism right now in terms of... Obviously, we're living more cynical times, whereas I can't think of a franchise more like defiantly hopeful than Star Trek. In its very bones and DNA, pretty much, it's conceived that way, isn't it? And even that, yes, it's on Netflix and CBS, Star Trek Discovery. 
But people criticise that as being a bit too dark, a bit too Star Wars bent, a bit too what at war. Whilst you've got like the Orville, which is inspired by the next generation era of Star yeah. Trek, that is a lot more optimistic yeah. and happy and friendly. And yeah, maybe that is, I think it's a, it is a, a sign of the times thing, is that we're living in an era where... Well, let's be honest, uh, the the world leaders of the superpowers are not anything to be proud of. Yeah, and maybe, the science fiction that always And maybe that. we don't want to go to the cinema to be a bit more depressed. Yeah. Uh, but that's not saying that, Ad, I mean, get back to Ad Astra, it's not a depressing film. Far from it. It's a very touching, very emotional film. And Brad Pitt is absolutely stellar throughout it. And that's not to disregard the supporting cast. I mean, even Ruth Negger, when she pops up in a very small role. Donald Sutherland, one of my favourites. She just steals oh, wow. the screen. Yeah, I mean, it, when he... Like, is it in it towards the start of the film? It's just like, whoa, hang on, I've not seen you for ages. Yeah. And, <laughs> and he was at his most Donald Sutherland as well. Straight oh. away, you just fall in love with that character. Like it's Brian a Sutherland. great film with a great cast, but all held together by Brad Pitt's voiceover, his journey, his characters, like, growing out of his father's shadow, becoming himself and learning to be who he could be and who he should be. Absolutely marvellous film. Loved and it's it. still playing... And like you say, there's flaws... But I think the sign of a good film is one that even when you can recognise the flaws, you can still love that film. Because there's no such thing as a perfect film. I don't care what anyone says. I get it all the time. Like, oh, Citizen Kane. Now, Citizen Kane's not a perfect film. There's a flaw right in the opening scene of that. And I'm not going to talk about it here because I've spoken about it so many times. <laughs> but the very opening scene, who heard that word, Rosebud? No one. No one was in the room. Uh, but you overlook things like that because the film has grasped you on an emotional core. And it's made you think, and you have gone away and you've thought about it and you've researched other people's opinions because it's put you in a position where you've gone, well, actually, that's what the film's supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be getting us to think about it. And that's what a good film does for me. And like you say, it's a shame that they're not having the impact on the big screen as long as we can get them in some form. The small screen is nothing to be sneered at. I mean, Scorsese's Irishman is just around the corner. New trailer out this week. But yeah, visually, I think that the big screen needs to be seen for Ad Astra because I don't think the visuals will convey as well and as impressive on whatever size TV you've got at home. And that's just still in your cinemas right now. Try and see it on the biggest screen possible or just see it on a screen outside of your home because it's well worth it. Which leads us on to your neat things, guys. What have we got? Before we do neat things, oh, can I just I'm... quickly mention um, a film out this weekend, Ready or Not? Oh, yeah, yes. I know. Um, I don't have a chance to see it's this. It's not been hugely promoted. But comedy horror? Comedy horror. A beautiful, dark comedy. Samara Weaving plays Grace, the newly wedded wife of Alex Ladomar, who's played by Mark O'Brien, and finds herself on the run from the family she's joined thanks to a wedding day ritual of gaming that turns into a vicious game of hide-and-seek. It's bloody, brutal, deliciously darkly comical. The film's a joyful, tight 90 minutes long, with some squeams and some screams. It's fantastically thrown together with a brilliant cast of oddball characters that you will have recognised from various TV shows and other films, but you'll never be able to remember the names of. And that's how I'm getting away with not knowing their names right now. <laughs> but it's an utter joy of a comedy horror. I thoroughly recommend it to everyone. Go and see it. It's 90 minutes of your life that you will just want to revisit and revisit and revisit. I can't wait to pick this up on home release and just keep rewatching it. Brilliant film. Fantastic recommendation. And that's playing right now. So as I was about to say, uh, neat things. Who's going to one neat thing? Well, I want to throw out, I'm going to comics this this time. And I'm six months behind on the Marvel comics in general because I use Marvel Unlimited. And I want to mention Marvel Unlimited as the big neat thing because Marvel Unlimited is a sub subscription service to Marvel comics that you can get on tablet devices or you can use on a PC or even on your phone if you want to go frame by frame. It's up to you. It costs about £50 a year. 
and you have an archive of Marvel comics leading back to the start of the eras and they're constantly adding new comics in. Like I say, it had all the comics from six months ago go on there. So as soon as like you, it's been on the shelf for six months, they go onto there, which means that I'm currently catching up on Spider-Man's Hunters storyline, which is a Craven the Hunter one, which is brilliantly put together in such a way that it echoes so many aspects of Craven's Last Hunt, which for me was the definitive Craven story. That was a J.M. DeMaiotis, Mike Zay. Yeah. Story. Um, absolutely brilliant. I mean, even the, the f- first issue of the Hunters like, storyline, the first five pages were basically the first five pages of Craven's Last Hunt, but now as the story. And like with him following the same pattern of like ritual as he want, like Craven once again, he's fed up at the hunt and he wants to get this out of the way, but he's no longer hunting Spider-Man. It's his son who's right. hunting Spider-Man down and he's going against his family. Brilliant storytelling. The Spider-Man comic has gone from strength to strength since Dan Slott left. And it's getting back to that whole feel of like undoing all the mistakes of the past, but also linking everything together and bringing back that nostalgic feel. I know I say nostalgia is bad in some things, but sometimes it works in order to get a title back. And at the same time, I don't know whether you've caught the uh, Spider-Man Life Story no. series. I've read the first issue of that. Is that the J.J. Abrams one? It, no, this is the Mark Bagley and Chip Zdarsky one. I like Chip Zdarsky's work. It's looking at, say, Spider-Man was 15 in the 60s. Now, if the character in the comic aged as the comics aged, how would you? T- how would the bigger impact of the world and also the Marvel universe impact on that character? So the first issue focuses on the sixties as a teenager, and like then it leads up to like Vietnam War, the Flash Thompson going off to war. But over the series, and I can't wait to read the le- rest of them. He's going to age alongside us. So by the time it gets to like the ones of like the two thousands, twenty tens, he's going to be an old man. And it's going to be how Spider Man adapts throughout the ages. Can't wait to see how this plays out. It's a great concept of a, another world kind of tale, or shall we say a, a what if kind of tale? Um, yeah, because all comics stuff. really aren't what ifs. Yeah, but yeah. sounds good. Marvel Unlimited. Subscribe, subscribe to it if you're behind on comics. If you want a jumping in point, you've only watched the Marvel films. You've always thought, ah, but where do you start? If you've got a tablet device, and who hasn't got a tablet device these days? Just get yourself a subscription to it. You won't regret it. Even just put yourself down for just one month and trial it. I guarantee you'll then pay for the year straight afterwards because there's so much backstory in there. You want to jump in and point, you can categorise it by characters, storylines or main events. So just pick a big crossover event like Secret Wars, read through that. Time to steal the tablet back from your kid. (laughs) Scott. Um, I've just mostly been uh, playing the uh, re-release of Final Fantasy VIII uh, for the Switch. They released um, 7, 8 and 9 Final Fantasies. Just, um, I, lo- I love turn-based uh, Japanese RPGs, especially of that time. And I, it's the height of video games for me around that period, as is the height, um, whenever people were the same age I was then, that's your height of video games. So I've just I've just been replaying um, Final Fantasy VIII. I've, I've not progressed since being 15. <laughs> I think um, Final Fantasy VIII was very underappreciated when it first got released. I remember there was a lot of negative backlash to it. Um, well, seven was such a... Hi, but I'm, I'm revisiting it in, as well myself, and you know, I, I, well, I say revisiting it. I've got as far as collecting cards for the card game. But that gets everyone triple <laughs> triad, and that's it. Dangerous game. I'm going to stay with video games, uh, but I'm going to my neat thing for the week is uh, the trailer for The Last of Us Part Two. 
Ooh. Uh, and if we can, I'd like to try and get a link on our on our page because it looks beautiful. The Last of Us was. I'm not a huge gamer. I I dip in and out. I've I've been playing Red Dead Redemption now since uh, uh, since Christmas. I I don't have the time to invest in games. So when I like a game, I, I throw everything at it. But I'm not a, I'm not in any stretch of the imagination a huge gamer. The Last of Us was the game that changed it for me. That was a game changer. That felt like being in a movie. I wept like a small girl when it when it ended. Um, I Even found the it... opening section of that game just completely captivates your heart and cripples you. It was immersive in a way that I'd not played a game before. And I'm, as I said, not a big gamer, so I, my repertoire is not huge. But I found it incredibly emotional. I played it a couple of times since. Um, I'm ready to revisit it, revisit Last of Us again. I need it on uh, for PS4, the remastered version, which is apparently the definitive version. For people who have PS4, if you've got a PS Plus account, next week, um, Last of Us is the free game of the month. Oh, right. Awesome. So if you've never played Last of Us and you've got a PS4 or you want to revisit it and you don't know where your disc is, wait until next week, get I it downloaded and plow yourself through that story before the second second part comes out next year. The second part trailer landed this week and boy, does it look, it look fantastic. It was a hint of the gameplay, but I'd almost forgotten it was a game by looking at the trailer. I've got a sense of what the film's about. It's a good... You're meeting some of the characters several years on. It felt like an emotional ride. It feels like a revenge drama from what I've seen on it. It's just, it's pure cinema. It's pure cinema in a game, and I'm all for that. I think the the, the thin line between film and video game has got a whole lot thinner. I can't wait to next year. I'm saving. Uh, and if my partner's listening, I know what I want for Christmas. <laughs> And that's it for the Film File episode four. We'll be back, uh, hopefully, to talk about the Joker. Yep. Because I think that's the big, uh, big smile on everybody's lips that's happening real soon. From me, Lee Ford. Andy Meekin. Scott. We'll see you again very soon. Bye.